Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Dangerous Rhetoric. This is episode 53. And today we are talking to Harrison Cayley. Harrison is a editor at Red Pill Press and co-host on the Mind Matters podcast. Welcome, Harrison. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes. Oh, and guys, remember, like, comment. Hi, guys. Oh, I always forget to do that. All that stuff. Like, comment, yeah. sub, and also check out Mind Matters. You can find it on YouTube uh, to search for Mind Matters. Subscribe. It's a great show. Yeah. Welcome, Harrison. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, guys. You can also, we also, uh, we're available on pretty much all the podcast platforms, too. So you can search us on like iTunes and, and, um, you know, Buzzsprout, probably Stitcher, Podbean, whatever all of them are, we should be on most of them. Yeah, we're on Spotify and all the other ones, except for iTunes. iTunes, the, uh, they don't like us for some reason. I've applied multiple times, can't get it on there, but I don't know. It is Too what dangerous. it is. So I wanted to ask you, Harrison, uh, I saw, you know, on Facebook that you guys are putting together a new edition of Political Ponerology, and I was hoping maybe you could just give our audience a brief explanation of Ponerology, uh, like, you know, its origin story. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a subject we have talked about on the show before, and, you know, we want to get someone on who knows it a little more in and out and is really familiar with, you know, that work, so... Yeah, sure. So you guys are lucky. We like that. Aside from a, a few kind of obscure ref tweets and references on Facebook, uh, we haven't actually announced it yet. So um, Michael Rechtenwald's writing the forward, or he has written the forward. So he uh, he pretty much uh, spilled the beans, no, <laughs> which was fine. Uh, totally cool. Um, so we right here first, guys. So yeah, yeah. So you get the you get the exclusive uh, audio visual announcement of the the new edition of Ponderology. It was first published. Well, okay, a little bit of the background. It was written in 1984. Um, fittingly, nice year to be written in, not only the year of my birth, but of course the, the year of George Orwell's famous novel, to which it is very relevant, and wasn't published. Uh, he, uh, the author, Andrew Lobachevsky, couldn't get it published. Lobachevsky was a Polish psychologist who moved to the States in the late 70s um, was pretty much forced to forced to leave Poland because he was arrested for uh, the third time because um, he'd, he'd been living in this Poland his whole, living in Poland his whole life and had some run-ins with the authorities for the work that he was doing and so moved to moved to New York in late 70s wrote the book in 84 couldn't get it published um, probably because of the subject matter probably also just because it was it's a strange book it's a uh, it was one at a it came around in a time where I guess there wasn't a lot of mainstream political psychology going on. And so the, the political writers would say it was too political. The, the psychology writers would say, or the psychology writers would say it was too political. The political writers would say it was too psychological. Hmm. Um, or the I, never, I, never, I never thought so, I never thought about it like that, that it would be looked at in that way and kind of create a, <laughs> I guess, a division amongst scholars of whether or not this was a legitimate scholar work, you know, if you have that much politics involved in it. Yeah, well, there, all, there were also probably, those were at least the reasons given by the publishers that he submitted it to. So who knows how accurate those actually were, if they were just excuses. I mean, they could have just thought the book was too hard to read and were trying to be polite to him. Who knows? Because it was a difficult book to read and the translation was a bit clunky. Um, but there could have also, and probably also were um, ideological, like political reasons behind it, because the book is a, um, a revelation of the psychopathology of communism, essentially. So... 
Well, we could speculate about the the number of kind of left-leaning and even communist-leaning publishers to, or people in publishing at the time. But regardless, it wasn't published in 1985, you know, when uh, or afterwards when the translation was done. And that left, uh, that left it unpublished for the next 20 years or so until 2005 when he got in touch with um, the editors of Saw.net and Red Pill Press and passed over the, the manuscript. And so it was finally published in 2006 by Red Pill Press, the, the first edition. So we're doing a new edition now. What we've done is um, with some of uh, with some Polish translators, we've gone through the the Polish edition and just kind of meticul meticulously compared the the original English translation to the the later Polish edition. Um, so correcting some of the the things that were kind of obscure, some of the things that were actually mistranslated or poorly translated. And for the Polish edition, which was published in '97, I believe, in Poland, he'd actually written a bunch more stuff and kind of like added a, just a, a few bits and he a few bits here and there updating it and just adding new bits. So we've translated a lot of those and added those in um, either into the text or as footnotes. So the book itself, for those of, for, for any listeners or viewers who have read the first edition, it's a, it's a more accessible version because it's easier to read. It's got more information. Um, I, I was the, the main editor, so I added like hundreds of footnotes um, adding information um, like the, the latest research examples, because some of the times like Lobachevsky will just uh, give a generalization or something, but won't give any background or ever, any kind of concrete examples of what, of what he's talking about. So I've added those in to help along and written a new introduction, giving more of the background of the book, more of the background of the kind of the the, the period in which it was written and the, the, the context in, it was, in which it was written. And then a bit of like the, the history of this kind of political psychology, um, which what wasn't really a, uh, there were several works done you know over the past like 100 years um but here and there and never never really that popular never uh like never really got to the level of pop psychology the way that psychopathy did in the 90s and 2000s with uh, like works f first by the with the works of robert Hare, he wrote without conscience a pop psychology book on on psychopathy really kind of reintroducing the concept for for just regular readers um and then after that, like if you if you search psychopathy on Amazon, you'll just see dozens and dozens of books that have been published since then. So that's psychopathy's finally kind of entered into the more of the the like mainstream worldview, and people kind of have an at least ha have more of an idea of what psychopathy is than they did in the nineties. Yeah. And but the, along with that, in in the last ten years, like pretty much like the year after we published Ponderology, the first edition. Um, there's a book called Evil Genes by Barbara Oakley that came out where she was arguing some of the same points and she hadn't read Ponderology. So this is the connection between um, like what we what what people would generally consider like evil politicians, evil leaders, dictators and authoritarians, you know, and psychopathology, personality disorders, but not just that, the the link between just politics in general and personality types. So the the prevalence of and perhaps the increased prevalence of narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism in um, people who go into politics. So this was one of, um, like Lobachevsky wasn't the only person to say it, but he was one of the one of the first, and um, he was the first to say it. Um, well, let's put it this way: just like a lot of scientific discoveries, he was one of several people that kind of noticed the same thing. None of them got very popular. No, no one really knew about them, like um, um, Gilbert. <clears throat> Gustav Gilbert, who was one of the um, allied psychologists at Nuremberg, he wrote a book called The Psychology of Dictatorship in 1950, 
where he made some of the same ob observations. He basically diagnosed Goering as a psychopath and uh, and Hus, uh, Rudolf Hus, the, 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 what's it, the commandant at Auschwitz as a schizoid personality. And so he'd, he'd made this connection between Per, like uh, the noticeable or the recognizable personality disorders that were recognized at the time, and um, like totalitarian leaders and people and people involved in the totalitarian system. But that book was never republished. No one knows about it anymore. You can you can read his, you can still find Gilbert's um, Nuremberg diaries where he writes about his interactions with uh, the defendants at Nuremberg, but you can't find his book um, Psychology of Dictatorship anywhere. And so he was one of the very few that actually saw this. And um, Lobachevsky and, the, and his colleagues in Poland and in, in the rest of Eastern Europe didn't have access to any of these books. Um, so they were they kind of learned these things on their own and came to the same conclusions about the the communist system. So not about not necessarily about Nazi Germany, but about the actual the, the communist system in the fifties and sixties. So they were they were based and so they were making the same observations at different time periods in different yeah. places without even realizing it. But, you know, Lobachevsky's whole thing is he want, he thought the focus on the question of evil came too much from the mystical, religious, theological, philosophical perspective. And that when we think about the question of evil, we always kind of go back to that lens to look at it. And he felt, well, what we're lacking here is a scientific perspective of how to classify what is evil and where does it come from, right? And that's what panorology right. means. It's the study of evil. And before him, and who is it you're mentioning? Goering? Is that his name, Goering? Um, well, the, the, writer, the writer was Gilbert. Gilbert, yeah. So before them, it's like this wasn't really a way to approach that question. You know, typically that was left to a, a the, as a theological matter. It wasn't something that typically scientists were, were looking at in that way. And for people that aren't totally familiar, uh, and I don't, I never understood why people say, why it's like called psychopathy when I always say psychopathy, but I, when we say psychopath, <laughs> people that if you're not familiar with that term, that's basically means somebody who's born without a conscience with a very narrow range of emotional expression. They're uh, violent, aggressive, manipulative, uh, the kind of extreme end of the cluster B personality disorders, you know, they kind of the antisocial disorders. When you're a psychopath, that's as antisocial as you can get. It's similar to the sociopath, but although sociopaths tend to be made, not born, at least that's the distinction in the language that I've been operating with for years. Yeah, well, but in the field, there's definitely those terms tend to be used interchangeably. Like I know if you read a uh, the sociopath next door by Martha Stout. She she addresses that in the book as well. That she when she uses the term sociopath, she actually is kind of talking about what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So terminology, you know, and I think yeah. So there are terminology. It's one of the things too. I think that makes Lobachevsky's work difficult for people to grasp is there's a lot of jargon, a lot of vocab. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of the things I try to clarify in in the book with the footnotes and with the introduction is to try to get his terms clear because a lot of the words he uses are are basically he's operating from a system of psychiatry and psychology that was used in the you know in the 40s and 50s and he's he's using that voc that vocabulary and in some ways I think it's it's actually better than the vocabulary that was used in the West like with the DSM um, well at least in America um, better than that in certain regards and in many ways the the field is kind of moving more in the direction that Lobachevsky was was going in in the sense that like Lobachevsky identified several pathways that lead to what we would call personality disorders and he 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 distinguished different types of personality disorders based on what their cause was 
So this was the kind of the, the tradition, the scientific tradition in which he, he was brought up. And that is, if you're essentially, yeah, classifying. So if you're essentially born with, <clears throat> born with it, if it's something that seems genetic or inherited, um, then he would consider that a psychopathy. So we'd probably consider um, um, like a lot of a lot of personality disorders to be um, to be inherited or to be um, like temperamental, to be gen genetic or somehow deeply rooted with uh, the development of of an individual. Um, and, well, there's there's even questions about that, but as just a, a rough framework, that that's what he went with. And so, if but if someone acquired um, personality changes through brain damage, and that brain damage can can, could come through blunt trauma um, to the head, often uh, and more severely as a child or as an infant, um, that there can be birth complications or even um, pregnancy complications like uh, lack of oxygen or uh, exposure to um, certain chemicals or substances or hormones, like too, too much or too less, um, too little. And so he distinguished between uh, like inherited and acquired forms. And then the third one was kind of the social influences. Like if you are, if you're a child raised by a, a parent or, or two parents who have personality disorders, he'd consider that a third. He used sociopathy for that one. So psychopathy was genetic. Um, characteropathy was acquired biologically through, through some kind of trauma to the brain. Yeah, that was the sociopathy was acquired through that was yeah. the way I was trying yeah, to characteropathy. So, characteropathy, um, yeah. It's one yeah. Of and so there's there's a, an approach now. Sorry, yeah, I'm from <laughs> we have that right. So delay. Delay. A slight, slight delay. But it's it's one of those words that he used that were very specific to his work that you don't really encounter terminology like that outside of Lobachevsky's work. I had never heard the term characteropathy before I read that book. Yeah, and that was that was a, a term coined by a, another Polish psychologist. So, um, so understandably, um, so that kind of gets carried over into the translation. But there's a new approach now that's gaining gaining prominence. It's it's well, it's it's pretty popular. It's called the I, I don't know the I can't remember the order of the words, but something like psychosociobiological perspective, and that that way of looking at it identifies all of the kind of risk factors for psychopathology. So you've got the the psychological um, genetic factors, the bio, the, the biological insult, like, um, um, trauma, uh, factors, and then the socioeconomic or just social factors. And you can have risk factors in all of them. So like the worst is if you have all three. So if you're born with a, with a susceptible, um, like template from your genetics, and then you have maternal neglect. So you have a, you know, a poor mother, for instance, um, or a, not a very good mother. And then you have like uh, poverty and you grow up in, in an area where there's like lots of violence and lots of crime. That's kind of a perfect recipe for producing like, like an, a, a totally, well, um, for a, a severely antisocial personality, right. Um, or the most violent, most kind of like, um, yeah, the most violent kinds of most common criminal type psychopathy. Yeah. So the, right. the way but I, if you if you don't have the way I think of it is like uh, you know if, if you have a psychopath who's raised say in the ghetto amongst you know drug violence and gang violence and that sort of thing, their parents and all that stuff. Yeah, you're going to get a more aggressive like gang leader type psychopath. Whereas you know you could. You could have one that might not have that factor. Maybe they were raised by perfectly good parents who provided every opportunity, did everything they could to try to establish that, that parent-child bond, which I believe um, is discussed in Without Conscience by Robert Harry. He talks about that 
you know, some of the cases they found that these people, it's not that they, they didn't have the neglectful parents. The parents tried to establish that bond. There was something in the child inherently that was preventing the child-parent bond from taking place. So that is more like the genetic type of psychopath. It mm -hmm. clearly indicates something where there's something in, in the nature of, of the being of, of the child and mm -hmm. necessarily something yeah. parent. But what does happen with you know someone who's born like that is the environment or the nurture determines the type of psychopath you get so you could get a coercive charming one who had all the opportunities given to them and maybe they end up as a politician or some you know, joe biden joe, <laughs> joe biden but they, they don't have to use force in those types of things or they just know to not use that to get their way they'll do it you know another way they probably even have good educations then you can have ones who were born into more destitute situations. They got beat, they got, you know, abused, all that stuff. And they become the violent type, the aggressive ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Um, it, sometimes I think some people would consider that a, a controversial view because a lot of people don't like just, I, well, my perspective is I think a lot of people just don't like the idea that um, anyone can be born bad, you yes. know, there's a bad seed. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that, um, comes I think that, having a, that comes with having a conscience, I think, you know, when you have a conscience, yeah. you naturally you want to believe every everyone is like you, you want to believe that there is a little bit of good in everyone who doesn't want to believe that who doesn't want to believe that there's something redeemable in in Adolf Hitler, there's something redeemable in Stalin, we want to believe that because we want to believe that like these people can be helped that we can change them. But maybe that is not the case. And maybe that's one of the reasons we continue to be uh, subject to the will and destruction of people like this is because we want to believe that so badly about them. Yeah. Well, I do think that um, just from a strictly scientific perspective, I think it's, it's a, fine, a fine assumption for researchers to have if it inspires them to, to look deeply into like uh, like root causes because it could be that um, like some of the researchers do consider it psychopathy to be a neurodevelopmental issue so that it um, who knows there could be some kind of like infant um, interventions that could be done to kind of prevent the the further development of psychopathy because it's not the case at least from the studies that are available it's not the case that if there's uh, identical twins for instance that both of them will be psychopaths you'd think that would be the case but it hasn't been totally demonstrated yet so we can't say that it's a hundred percent inherited and that it's it's just like uh, from conception until adulthood that's just a definite path that that's that uh, an individual is going to be on I mean it could be the case who knows with more research they, they might discover that but it does seem to be the case that it's like 50% genetic 50% environmental you know whatever that means and um, but the even if you even if you take that as kind of a methodological starting point at least from a research perspective that doesn't mean that an adult psychopath um, can change yes because even if it's even if there's even if there's some kind of window of opportunity in in uh, like pr either pregnancy like in utero or as an infant or as a child when you've got an adult psychopath um, all evidence is they're not going to change you can't shake their you can't change their basic psychological structure well, and I, so with that in mind that kind of will determine how you're going to deal with them yeah and and, and without conscience I, I also recall the section where he talked about the increased rate of recidivism that they observed in the very psychopathic inmates that they they tried to reform and they kind of found that the more they tried to reform them 
Uh, they made but, them better. Yeah, well, better psychopaths. The more they actually ended up just more effective manipulators. The more likely they were to just end up back in prison anyway and doing something crazy after you know recidivism. So it's mm-hmm. it is interesting. It definitely raises a lot of questions. But I think what you bring up about like the very very early type of interventions. That I think is where the research should certainly start to look and like maybe if there's a way to like mitigate the damage of this sort of thing on society that is, which brings me to one of the points that I, I wanted to address is, um, you know, Lobachevsky, he was looking at it, this subject in a different way than even still a lot of the scholars today are most of them are still I think looking at the personal individual ways that psychopathy and psychopathy and things like that affect us in like our personal lives. He was looking at something that we call macro social evil. This was what he coined it. And he was looking at the larger scale of how a person like this could end up in a higher position in society of power. And that when they do, the uh, the damage they're able to do is uh, substantially worse and way disproportionate compared to the amount of these types of people actually exist in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I'll get I'll I'll get back to something that we were talking about just a bit earlier about the nature of evil. So you you, you guys mentioned that Lobachevsky's kind of one of his implicit points is that the way we've been looking at evil hasn't been appropriate to to what it actually is. Um, and obviously, because we haven't eliminated evil, you know, it's it's uh, obviously we don't understand it. Um, but his approach is he he argues that moral evil, like what, what people just generally think of when they think about evil, which is, you know, I'd say, um, if we, even if we take it out of the, the metaphysical realm, out of religion, about some kind of like evil, evil force or evil, um, like, um, you know, you know, like the demonology or something like that, or, or the idea of Satan or, or something specifically religious like that. Um, if we just eliminate that, because that's what he does as a scientist, even though he's a Christian, um, he, he looks at okay, well, what what are the what what does human evil look like? And that's um, pretty much the like intentional harm that people do to each other. This can be this can range from um, like emotional abuse to slander to lying about a person to physical violence to like deadly uh, um, to to murder to sexual abuse sexual abuse of children. Like these are the things that we generally consider evil in our everyday lives. And so he argues that there's a tight link, um, like probably like like if you imagine if you imagine a Venn diagram that's almost completely you know two circles are almost identical that that what we consider moral evil is intimately linked with what he calls psychobiological evil that the things that we that we consider evil um are intimately linked with psychopathology so he gives the example of from his practice he he gives the um like in his career as a um as a psychologist working in in various institutions, <clears throat> hospitals, um, working as a, like a industrial psychologist that out of the like 5,000 patients that he, that he, um, worked with <clears throat> that the, the vast majority, like 90%, 97%, he could identify of people who he could identify as committing some kind of evil, like the types I just mentioned also had, a, 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 an identifiable psychopathology associated with that. And those would go back to the, the, the things, the, the three kind of um, pathways that I mentioned. They were either psychopaths, um, characteropaths, or, um, you know, just people with personality disorders and, or sociopaths, just, well, I guess the, the overall term would be people with personality disturbance or, 
or personality disorders. And so, well, for, for listeners who aren't familiar with personality disorders, I should have said something about that early on. Those are the ones that, well, the ones we recognize in the West are things like, um, there's the cluster Bs. You guys had Josh Slocum on for a show, so he probably talked about this. So the cluster Bs, like narcissistic, borderline, um, antisocial, um, personality disorders. What, is there another one? Uh, well, but then, then there's also oh, like <laughs> schizoid personality disorders. Yes. Schizoid, uh, like dependent, um, uh, paranoid. Um, so that there's there's something. I think there's like ten personality disorders that are recognized in Western um, psychiatry. But uh, that's just kind of one way of classifying them. There are different ways, um, in including a personality-based one that's more based on the Big Five personality traits. But uh, we don't have to get into that unless you guys want to. And so, so there's this issue of evil. Um, this kind of overlap of psychobiological, uh, psychobiology and morality and the things we consider evil. And so one of the one of the main points that he makes in regards to that is that the dynamics, those interpersonal dynamics, or I wouldn't even say that just the, the dynamics are the same, no matter the scale. So it can be on the interpersonal level, it can be on the small group level, or it can be on the like what, what you said, uh, what he calls the macro social level. Um, this is the level of an entire uh, nation or country or empire. And so when he's talking, when he's talking about communism, he rarely refers to it as communism. He refers to it as a macro social pathological phenomenon, as a social disease, um, because what he observed and what he and his colleagues observed was that <clears throat> the way he described it, I think, I think this was in an interview. Um, he, he'd said that, um, he was asked about the, well, there's this one principle that he uses because um, because of that phenomenon, that the dynamics are the same no matter what level you're on, then he argues in the book that in order to get an idea of what's going on in the Kremlin, for instance, you know, in the for, in the USSR, you can study a small village in um, like an outpost or like a uh, one of the Eastern Bloc countries, like Poland. You can go to a small village, understand the dynamics of what's going on in that village, and get a pretty good idea of how things are operating in the Kremlin, because the system, like a fractal, replicates itself on every level. Mm -hmm. And the thing he, he observed about the, the village that he was studying at the time or, you know, working in at the time and studying at the same time was that all of the psychopaths in the community were like on the central committee or whatever the, the top like political um, communist committee was. That's where all the psychopaths were. You didn't have all the psychopaths like you have in a just, a, you know, a, a more uh, a more normal society, which have their own problems, where You'll have some psychopaths in, in positions of influence and power. You'll have some psychopaths. Well, they're, they're just distributed throughout the population. You'll have like the low level criminals. You'll have like, it's like if you, if, it's if like you look the, in the states, the disease that infects starts to lift those types of people toward the top. But also it's those types of people gravitate towards positions that give them like authority or control or their ability to manipulate mm -hmm. other people. Because, you know, the psychopath or the disturbed type person one of the things we didn't talk about is like how they view others who aren't like them as a, a resource in a sense, as a thing, as a means to an end. They don't necessarily view us as beings. We're almost more like objects. Well, and also one of the key traits is that they yeah. sort of derive pleasure from causing other humans to suffer. And that's the key distinction really in my mind from the people that have these disturbances versus people that have, you know, a, the, a functioning conscience or a potential for conscience is that we derive joy from the joy of others. Well, that's, that's the normal model. 
model. Whereas these particular individuals, they, on, they only feel pleasure when they inflict suffering on the people around them. Yeah, and so the the term for that is sadism. So there's a lot of there's a yeah there's a um, there's an overlap, you know, with personality traits. So you'll find you won't like I, I'd probably I'd say that I'm not familiar with the the research on this, you know, in depth. But I think sadism there's probably uh, a spectrum a spectrum of sadism. So you'll find some people who aren't psychopaths who have a sadistic streak to them or elements. Well, I think you, this is the thing about a lot of psychopathy or, or psychopathology in general is that they are, most of the traits that you'll find in psychopathology are normal human traits that are taken to extremes or that, that get taken to extremes by the, by the exclusion of other traits. So you take away any ability for conscience in a psychopath and you're going to have certain tendencies that are kind of latent in, in humanity. I think that, that become, um, kind of supreme in the psychopathic personality because everyone, I think everyone has experienced like, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Scheidenfreude, you know, the, the, when, when one of your enemies, you know, <laughs> something bad happens to them or, you know, someone burns them really bad and you just feel a little bit of pleasure at seeing, at seeing them suffer. And I think that's a, like a pretty normal, normal form of sadism, but with like, with a sadistic psychopath, it's literally the kind of like horror movie stuff where, or serial killer stuff where they actually um, like, well, the, the, the weirdest and most kind of extreme form for me, at least is the the sexual sadists um, like violent sexual sadists who, who um, literally get off on like brutal, uh, yeah, brutal violence. And there's um, a book I'm remembering right now. I can't remember the authors, but it's three authors and it's actually, um, they were the characters in that Netflix series. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Oh, Mindhunter. Mind yeah, Mindhunter. So they wrote a book. They're the ones who actually kind of really studied those types, of, those types specifically in depth. But they wrote a book called mm -hmm. Sexual Homicide, which is all about classifying those types to people who like get sexual arousal out of chopping other people up and and Dumber, things like Bundy, that. And they and it, what's weird is like not all of them even like do penetrative things and stuff like that but it's just strange there is definitely a whole like weird spectrum to the sadism and yeah that is the most extreme form of it and people who like i said earlier who have a conscience and want to believe there's a little bit of good in everyone when you're confronted with stuff like that it is extremely difficult to still have that belief when you know that those types of folks are out there and the things that they are capable of doing to other humans um, really makes you question that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there's another book by probably one of those three authors. Um, what's it called? Something like like we, we hunt monsters or how, how we hunt monsters or something like that. And he was one of those FBI profiler guys. And so he talks about that too. Um, so Robert got there. A. Wrestler and Burgess and John yeah. Douglas. They were the they were the three and yeah those the, three the first main, guy yeah those three main characters yeah, in the My Hunter series. That's who they're based on. Is these three, but yeah, yeah, creepy stuff, um, not fun stuff to learn about. That's for sure, but necessary. Well, one of one of uh, on my show Mind Matters on on YouTube at least one of the most popular shows we did was on Israel Keys, a more modern serial killer. Um, early two thousands is I believe when he got caught or was it 2012 it might have been early 2010s actually when he got caught 
And um, so we did, we read a book on him and did, did a show on the book. And then I found this podcast called True Crime Bullshit. And the guy that does it is Josh, um, I can't remember his last name, but if you search True Crime Bullshit and Josh, he's got a, a podcast where he's done, I think there's been like four or five seasons and all except one of them have been on Israel Keys. And so if you want to like an in, if you like true crime or if you're Josh, interested in serial killers, I'd really re It's Josh Hallmark. Hallmark, yep. Uh, it's a great show because he's he's he himself is a great investigator. So he's put in hundreds and hundreds of hours, probably thousands of hours investigating this case, trying to find um, other victims that haven't been identified. And a lot of background you hear the he includes um, Tra or um, recordings from the FBI invest uh, like interrogations of keys and interviews, all kinds of stuff. So um, I'd recommend that one for, well, just for anyone, for listeners who are interested in true crime or serial killers or psychopathy, because Israel keys was a, uh, like a, a really interesting case study in a, you know, psychopathic serial killer. And, um, so well, you, you can see the images he, pre he, he presents, you can, you can see the way he talks and then you see what he was doing, you know, but this, when he so was alone is, and hunting, I think, I think this is a good uh, springboard into another subject that kind of wanted to address is that it's the misconceptions people have about psychopaths because of these types, the aggressive ones, the, the, mm -hmm. the killers, you know, those types. And, you know, for a long time, I guess this is kind of going away now because you talked about earlier, there's definitely more of an interest in the subject that's arising and more people seem to be talking about it, more books are coming out, more articles. But it's this misconception that, you know, when you think of a psychopath, that's what people think of. They think of the aggressive serial killer types. And the detriment to that is they don't understand that the majority of them probably aren't like that. They operate on the shady side of the yeah. law, which was how Robert Hare put it. And even the flaw in his own work, which he addressed, is that what he was studying was a portion of the prison population who are the failed psychopaths. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones who got caught, you know, and one of the things mm -hmm. that we don't know is like about how many there are is because a lot of them don't get caught. They, they don't technically break the law. You know, a psychopath doesn't have to beat you up or kill you. They could... I don't know, like meet you at a pub and then form a personality that they think you're going to like and then start dating you for a year. And the next thing you know, like your bank account is empty and they disappear from your life, you know, something like that. Equally mm -hmm. without conscience, just not something that's violent or aggressive. And I think people need to really understand that that misconception kind of clouds our judgment and clouds our ability to really see the full complexity of the issue and probably makes us more more open to being manipulated by these types of people because we assume we're we're going to see someone aggressive immediately, but they can be charming. Yeah, well, the the the, the weird thing about that, I, like I, I agree with everything you said, um, but there's a weird thing about that is that people assume that oh, a ser uh, psychopath must be a serial killer, like somehow the two are equivalent, but you know, very few psychopaths are, are serial killers. Like serial killers are an extremely rare breed, but no one knows a person's a serial killer until they get caught. So this is the thing. This is where, this is where um, the the comparison is actually apt because serial killers are expert 
um, even the, the so-called fail ones, the ones that get caught, well, the only reason they're considered serial killers is because they didn't get caught for the entire period of their career, right? So they were successful until they got caught. And um, you look at uh, like Ted Bundy or Israel Keys, and no one suspected a thing. They might have thought they were weird. They might have revealed a little weird thing here and there. Um, people might have had questions about them, but no one guessed that they were serial killers. Like these people, um, serial killers and psychopaths in general, they can they can skirt by. They can they can totally fool you. Um, well, even the even the totally crazy ones. Yeah, they they blend. Yeah, they're in. chameleons. They're social chameleons. They blend in. I remember you know the description in Without Conscience too, where he talks about. Um, I think it was a scene in a movie. I forgot what movie it is, but like she's looking into the mirror and then is trying to play act emotions you know and th this is another interesting thing about that is you know how how self-aware are psychopaths and you know do all of them get to this point where they might start to actually realize hey there's something fundamentally different about me than the rest of people i should be crying right now at this funeral but i'm not and how many of them are aware of that and just know to play act the emotion so as to blend into the social situation mm -hmm. That's and that's that's a really interesting thing. Um, I can't remember the that was Robert Hare that wrote about that. Um, he might have talked about it in a documentary. I can't remember the actress. It was a blonde actress, um, and it was a true crime movie from the yeah. '90s. But I can't remember which one. Either. <laughs> yeah, and so she was like at, at a car at a car accident and watching the the like I think it was like the mother of the child that, that died in the car accident and watching her facial expressions and then going home um, in front of the mirror and practicing those facial expressions. And that's actually kind of common for a lot of, not just psychopathy, but um, common to a certain degree amongst uh, a number of um, like mental disorders, like um, even in autism, um, where the, in, like the, the inability to understand social cues and social interactions, and then kind of having to teach them, uh, it's schizophrenia too, kind of having to teach them to yourself um, based on this like strict rule-based thing. Okay, in this situation, this is the normal thing to do. Um, and with psychopathy, it just gets, it's just a lot, uh, creepier because it's, it, there, well, it is this weird kind of chameleon thing, like you were saying. And one of the, the, I read a book, one of the latest kind of scientific books on psychopathy called Understanding Psychopathy by, uh, I believe his name's Chris Thompson, something like that. And it's just a summary of all the latest research. And so he talks about a bit about this and, and his, the kind of summarizes, I can't remember if it was his idea or if he's just summarizing the, the, the possible explanations for this, but he, he, the, base, the way of kind of looking at it is that if you understand psychopathy as this developmental problem from early childhood, then from an early age, then kids can't understand, uh, psychopath, psychopathic children can't understand these social cues. So, so their entire um, socialization period, like, you know, from, from, well, from infancy, they've been learning this, they've been observing this because they can't, they can't react with the normal human reactions. So by the, by the time you get an adult, you get a, uh, like an expert manipulator who has for their entire life been like trained by virtue of their own psychology to, to act, um, to act these things out, 
to they essentially they're they're actors who have been trained you know from infancy to to be expert actors which uh well maybe that says something about hollywood too that was that was that was what i was about to say i'm like this kind of raises a question of you know how many actors and people, Baldwin. <laughs> kevin spacey you know how many, how many actors and people who gravitate towards that position are actually just psychopaths and they're just really good at play acting really good at play acting emotions you know you have to wonder yeah, that's a that, that would be an interesting yeah. research project and, you know <laughs> and then you think about like house of cards and you're like hmm, no wonder you played that character so well it's like that's maybe who you've been this whole time you know it, it definitely mm -hmm. makes you definitely makes yeah. you older but yeah like to me that has always been one of the creepiest things about it is this idea that they they kind of blend in but not just that you know like i mentioned earlier like how many of them get to a point i think of like self-awareness that they are fundamentally different meaning where they start to realize this mm -hmm. and not just that how many yeah. of them begin to view themselves as superior to other beings because of that yeah. and this is something i've thought about before too you know and you see it typically in like the comic book villain or in movies you know where they have that approach where they're just like well you're weak you can't do what i can do to keep power and to get power and you're too weak you know your pitiful little mm -hmm. emotions hold you back from doing the things necessary to become great and powerful and you know so that this maybe riff on that a bit and oh yeah my mind was wandering a bit but um uh oh yeah so so the psychopathic mentality um it's pretty much the way psychopaths tend to look at the world, and this you can find this in in Hare's book, also in Thompson's book, is it's kind of the the total adoption and acceptance of this dog eat dog world, um, or the law of the jungle. So there's this complete self centered um, self centered nature, where for the psychopath it's very it's narcissistic. This is kind of like essential narcissism, where I deserve everything, and and so, and there, and what, so when it comes to property, for instance, I want that, I deserve it. Therefore, it is right for me to take it from you. And I'm justified from taking it from you because I can. And um, there's, there's got, there's probably more, there's probably better ways of putting it, but that's kind of essentially it is that like, uh, like Brent, like you were saying, um, I think it was Brent, um, that psychopaths see see other people as objects or maybe it was you daniel that was, um, as yeah. objects as tools as as a resource yeah as a resource as you put it and so um and as, as a resource that is mine to exploit and so there's this is kind of the mentality that uh, uh samino samanov um talks about in the criminal mind inside the criminal mind it's this this idea that well i deserve it um the, these so when i take something from someone else I deserve it and you deserve it. You deserve for me to take it from you because you know because you're because you're weak. Um, I am superior to all you lowly beings. And so this is Lobachevsky argues that, that that's a, a common feature among psychopaths is that th this kind of superiority that they feel to, to regular humans. So um, all these other people that that have these um, like well. It's hard to get inside the mind of a psychopath, but we're talking about like the the observing of other people's emotions, for instance. So a psychopath, on some level, is going to be aware that that well, you know, other people they they cry when you punch them or when you shoot them or when you stab them or they or they scream. It's it's like they, so they they realize that other people have these reactions that they don't have, but because they can't feel them, they don't 
they can't really make the leap that there's actually something behind those feelings. It's just this kind of um, biological reaction that other people seem to have for some reason. And, and so there's a disconnect there, but, oh, what was my point in bringing that up? Um, well, relating that to like the psychopathic worldview. So when you, when you're looking at all these other people, they, they tend to behave in these strange ways that are incomprehensible to the psychopath. Um, these are the, the, the things that we consider just being a normal human. So when you see people interact, there's kind of like, there's a give and take, there's a trust, there's a trust often in relationships and interactions. <clears throat> I remember, and, uh, love it. Uh, and that's just totally foreign. Hair. It was hair who, uh, used, I think it was the analogy of uh, colorblind. Um, and describing yeah. emotions and to the psychopath, you know, he described them as being colorblind, you know, imagine someone approaches a red light and, you know, they don't know the light is red. They just know where the red light is and they know based on its position that that means go or that means stop, but they don't actually know what red looks like or what yellow looks like or what green looks like. And it, he sort of uses that analogy to describe how emotions are to, to the psychopath. You know, they, they can like identify them when they, when they see them based on the reaction, but they don't actually know what that is like experientially. They don't get it. Right. And that's, um, that's something that Lobachevsky gets into. Um, there's probably, there's like, it's, it's deep because for, for normal people, um, like the, the vast majority of people, they grow up, um, well, how to put it, our emotional nature is kind of implicit. It's, it's, so, it's so foundational to our personalities and the way we interact with the world that we don't notice it. So we don't notice that there are things underlying our social interactions with each other. It's very hard to notice those things. I mean, you can notice them if you look for them and if you're aware that they're there. But there are certain kind of um, implicit things going on in just regular everyday human interactions. And so this is probably one of the reasons that psychopathy is so hard for a lot of people to understand is because it is so foreign, because that, that basic substructure of the human personality and human sociality is missing in psycho in psychopaths. Goes and the other so, way too. So in, in, yeah. in their own inability yeah. to, to understand us. It's like there's a wall there. Almost, right. You know. So we I think probably normal humans have a better chance of understanding psychopaths than psychopaths have of understanding normal humans because we can makes like sense. um think in terms of what's a what would it be called like a uh, a process of uh, negation or elimination. It's like we can we can imagine removing certain things about normal human nature and maybe come to some approximation of what it must be like to be a psychopath. But you can't add anything on for that. You know that you can't add anything when it's not there in the first place. So point. psychopaths have no no possibility of even imagining what it's like to just to just feel uh, uh, like a normal like normal human emotions in a normal relationship. It's just like, uh, that person is just meat, uh, a thing to be used and, and thrown out when they're, you know, when, when it's convenient but and there's a, no guilt, no remorse. And as someone who has a conscience, we, we can understand what it's like to not feel too, you know, or at least to become numb to something, to turn it off. And I often describe it as like a mechanism that can be turned on and off. Right. And that's how you see the ponderological processes, you know, a psychopath gets in power and then they get a lot of people to turn theirs off and where the psychopath just does not have 
that mechanism. It's just simply not there. But by us having the full range of human emotions, we can still understand aggression or hunger or, you know, those basic sort of primal drives that the psychopath does have. But we have the other stuff they don't have it like you said it's like for us it's a process of elimination we can imagine what it's like to like not care about people maybe or to to you know eliminate joy and happiness or whatever from you know seeing someone else be joyful and happy but the psychopath can't imagine what it's like to have those things yeah and that's that actually gets to something I've been thinking about recently, and we talked a bit about a, a bit about it about it on the show that we did um, on the managerial revo- on the managerial revolution, um, because we were talking about uh, Michael McConkey's work. Uh, McConkey's a guy who's read Ponderology, and and he's been writing about it lately, and so he's talking about this idea of the managerial revolution. This this kind of over the past hundred hundred and fifty well well hundred plus years that uh, um, authors like uh, James Burnham have made, made the point in like the, the 40s that there was a new revolution going on in the West and it was the managerial revolution. It was a new class that was kind of taking political power. And that nowadays, so the argument is that that was successful, that nowadays those, that is the ruling class today is the, is the managerial type. It's not the military, it's not the nobles, you know, the aristocrats, it's not the capitalists, um, like the, the 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 property owners, it's the the managers. The managers have taken over essentially and have for for decades. And so he made the point that um, that there's I don't know if he used this phrase, but that there's almost a functional psychopathy among the managerial class because one of the things about a managerial type is their kind of facility with language manipulation. So you don't have to be a psychopath to be a PR man. Um, you don't have to be a psychopath to be a PR spokesman. You just have to read the script, right? And have the ability to have your answers ready. Okay, when they ask about this, this is our party line. These are the answers that you give. And so you can you can be a normal human and you can do that. Um, maybe with some, um, with, you know, more or less or greater or lesser pangs of conscience. You know, you might feel bad about it. Maybe you won't um, because that's just the, the culture that you've been, oh, well, encultured into. So you have this, kind of pseudo psychopathic mentality that is um, endemic among the, uh, uh, the ruling class. And it could be a large majority of normal people in the ruling class. But the problem is that because you are acting like a psychopath, that makes it that much easier and that much easier or that much easier for um, psychopaths to gain entry into that position. And it makes it that much more attractive for psychopaths to gain entry into that, snakes, that, um, snakes that position. And, snakes and suits, I think is a book that definitely focuses mm-hmm. more on those types of people. Like the, you know, the, the psychopath in the workplace, I think is the subtitle to that book. And that was another one by Robert Hare, but he co-wrote that one. I think it was Paul Babiak. Paul Babiak. Paul Babiak. Yeah. And that's a that's a great book for anyone you know listening to definitely check out if you want to understand more this side of it like the managerial corporate type of psychopath and like like you said like that environment seems to not just attract those types but those types do better in that environment which is why it attracts them yeah yeah it's easier for them and this is this is one of the most interesting point uh, or most important points in ponderology when we're applying this to to history and to modern modern history, to politics, is he gives a kind of progression of how this happens in politics. And it might be a simplified version because 
um, he acknowledges even in the book that he was writing or he started researching this in the 50s um, when the, the communist system was kind of imposed on, on Poland and had been in existence for the previous, what, um, like 20, like 30 plus years, or like, well, let's say 30 years. So in the USSR, for instance, that the system had like 30 years to develop and refine itself. And so he kind of came in and started researching it at a fairly advanced stage. So he acknowledges that the early stages of the development of this macrosocial disease, he had to kind of like, um, uh, I wouldn't say guess, but he had to infer the dynamics that were going on in those early stages by reading history, you know, probably by, you know, talking to his elders and trying to figure out what happened in those early years. So we can't have a, so there's probably some question uh, or there's room for refinement on how this, on the early stages of this process, but the picture that he painted, the, the, the progression that he laid out was that um, it tends to happen like this. And it tended to happen like this, like in the 1800s and the early 1900s that you have um, an incompetent leader, often perhaps with a form of brain damage that basically messes with their facilities. It could also be um, senility, um, but but various mental uh, mental problems. Wow. Put it that way. I'm just and about, when that happens, uh, thinking about our current head chief. Oh God. Well. So what happens in that situation? Well, okay, so now you've got incompetence um, at, the, at the highest levels. And the way this tended to happen was that what happens when you have an incompetent leader? Well, they tend to be surrounded, they tend, well, this is what he argues, um, tend to be then surrounded by kind of sycophants and they end up making poor decisions. And when people start um, getting upset with these poor decisions, maybe, maybe it might be poor military decisions or just poor, uh, uh, poor foreign relations, poor, poor international, uh, what's for, poor foreign policy, poor domestic policy, people start getting upset. Well, then you've got this, the situation where the, the, the top is the, the person at the top is incompetent. And then you've got this growing resentment and you get, uh, you get a, essentially a protest movement or an opposition movement that, that gains, um, legitimacy to some degree or popularity. And then that requires the, the clamping down of that, um, that opposition because the ruling power wants to stay in power. And when you have that, then you have the requirement for people to do the, the, to do the oppressing or the repressing. And that makes, and the, the people that are more suited to do, to do the repressing are the people with more personality disorders. And then you have the, the people who are more suited to, to lying and scheming within the inner circle who, who gains, who, who gain power in politics. And, so this develops a situation where the the people at the top, the the kind of the the upper echelons of the ruling class become more and more saturated by um, by personality disorder people, and the opposition too becomes more and more saturated by personality disorder people. And then it's just a matter of which one's going to win. And you and um, you can have a pathocracy that develops all the way from the top. You know the steady progression of a um, like the, the infection of a, of an existing power structure. Or you can have a revolution from below, like in, like the, the the Russian Revolution, where a pathological opposition gains power and then institutes a pathocracy and totally wipes out all the people that were um, in the previous ruling class. And so there's this there's this kind of this weakening of how did he put it in one? I, don't, I think this is an, an, in an unpublished bit or one of his other writings where he, he describes it as um, 
authoritative rule descends to authoritarian rule, which then becomes you know pathocratic rule. So you have this this progression of the mis just like it, it's how poor leadership and um, other factors too. Um, we haven't talked about the hysteria, mass hysteria, um, how all these factors kind of contribute to to the, just the decay of an existing society or social structure or political structure, and that decay um, is like um, it's like sweet sweet smelling food or fragrance, you know, for for psychopaths to to move in and and just uh, um, you know, take over. So would you say we are living through such a time this, period? It right sounds now? very familiar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, there's, I've, I, I kind of go back and forth on how to interpret everything that's going on because there are a number, like I see advantages to seeing, to, to looking at things in a variety of different ways. So I, I don't, I don't want to say explicit, or I don't want to say, um, with any degree of certainty what's going on, but I can offer some, some options, some different things. So there are some people that would, that argue, um, like people either familiar with ponderology or not familiar with ponderology, that all politics is the same everywhere, that it's always psychopaths in power, um, no matter what your system, like no matter what. Now, um, I can see the, I can see the, the advantage in, and even the, I think the motivation for seeing that, because I think there's a degree of truth to it. But at the same time, um, I'm not sure that it's totally true. Um, I think there's, I think there's more going on, more going on than that. Um, but that's that's a that's a huge question. Um, so that there's there's another option is that perhaps there's a degree um, in an in a well, let's just say you could you could take the average of all human societies. I think that there's that you could make the argument that there's going to be a higher proportion of psychopaths than in any other like sphere, perhaps. Well, except for perhaps for some uh, um, uh, like you know gang leaders or something, where that's pretty much like almost 100 percent or something like that, or at least a lot higher, not 100 percent. But um, but that what Lobachevsky's talking about when he's talking about pathocracy is a very specific type of like social structure. And so what I see going on is that there is, let's say, a lot of psychopathology in like society and in our politics. But I think that we haven't yet approached the, the degree of what Lobachevsky would classify as apathocracy. Um, but I think we're, we're definitely going in that direction. Um, you could even make the argument that by virtue of the fact that there are, um, that there is this degree of psychopathology going on, that it's some kind of pathocracy um, or perhaps at a you know at a developing stage of pathocracy but what what Lobachevsky's talking about is when what you could call the entire psychopathic subset of a population becomes the ruling class which is which as far as I know hasn't happened yet <laughs> you know <laughs> I can't see that happening there are still several you know lots of there are millions of psychopaths that are still in prisons, uh, millions of psychopaths that still aren't in politics. Um, what he what he observed. Now, this is a question. This is an empirical question. Was he right or not? I don't know. I can't verify it. But uh, but I I tend to trust him. I tend to think he was probably pretty close to correct. Is that like that like in that example of the village that he was studying? All of the psychopaths in that village were top committee members on the in the in the the local government, 
and that that replicated itself no matter what village you were in, no matter what city you were in, no matter what province you were in, no matter what country or like or major region you were in. Um, there's a book called Substate Dictatorship, an academic book that kind of gets into this from a political science like sociology point of view, but, uh, not from a technological substater substate dictatorship by um, I can't remember his first name. His last name's Klevniuk. He's a Russian uh, Ukrainian, I think, like Ukrainian Russian, uh, but he lives in Russia. Uh, academic on like uh, the on Soviet Union in like the well, he's he's written a biography of, of Stalin and uh, yeah, yeah, he did that. He co-authored that one. Um, but that's like a look at man i can't say these names and oh yeah gorlitsky i think clev uh, man i can't say these russian names yeah Klevniuk. yeah i was uh, like noting all of these books because i'm like i want to check these out later well that one kind of just looks at it like the political structure and how the the basically how the one way of looking at that fractal structure that I was talking about, about how the system kind of replicated itself on every level. And that's probably, it's, you know, probably normal in, in any kind of social structure, but when you have one that's dominated by, by psychopaths, then it's going to have certain flavor to it. And, you know, certain characteristics that probably aren't present in other political systems. But I'd say probably the biggest danger um, is that things continue to get worse or, or that, um, um, the, the, the optimistic thing would be to say that there are existing social um, uh, social norms and structures that would prevent the the full blown development of of a pathocracy, um, but that doesn't mean that that we won't be in various countries in the West saddled with a kind of um, like hybrid pathocracy for who knows how many years to come, where it's just like you know they they won't go that far, they won't they won't totally um, replicate. Um, like the 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 absolute totalitarian control on every level, or you know maybe they'll just be able to do it without that social structure in place. You know, with um, um, with like what everyone's uh, what everyone's afraid of with uh, all of, with like the Great Reset and with uh, what can be done with digital currencies and the like the ability to just lock people like totally control people's monetary transactions and with like a a kind of black mirror social credit type system yeah. like you can imagine some pretty dark shit that could that could go down without having to to totally restructure the the um like the social the social order and it's, but who knows you know, by virtue of doing those things it can create it it's because of our technology too i think that's why the methods are changed they don't you know they don't have to like round people up or do it in in necessarily that way anymore it's like now we have you know, most people have a personal computer on them at all times. So it's it's a different uh, playing field now. And I think a lot of what's happening is definitely more like psychological war than anything. It also reminds me of viruses because viruses like, well, they, they come up to a cell, they connect, then they inject their, uh, their DNA, their genetic material into the cell and they hijack the cell. And very quickly, the cell becomes not what the cell is meant to be, but it just reproduces that same viral infectious material until the cell actually dies. And then when that happens, it releases more of that infectious material to continue the process elsewhere. Hmm. It's a good analogy. It seems similar. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to pivot a little bit, um, I guess, into the Ukraine situation, because I wanted to get your thoughts on that. There's a lot of conflicting information. Uh, the propaganda is heavy now, and I'm seeing a lot of uh, 
drums of war talk online on twitter everywhere else what are your thoughts on all of that and what's happening over there <clears throat> oh uh there's lots yeah. <laughs> well I'll, I'll start by saying that, i'll start by saying that i didn't see it coming um you know like like a lot of people i think i think this was a this was a um boy who cried wolf situation with the with the American, well, with the Western intelligence agencies, right? Where for years they, they've been talking about Russian invasions and they never come to pass, right? So the, the next time that they, that they say, oh, there's a Russian invasion imminent, you know, it's like, ah, pff, you know, bullshit, not gonna happen. And then, well, so the fact that it has happened made me wonder, oh, maybe they did have some actual intelligence that this was going on. But what strikes me the most is, yeah, there's a lot of propaganda, a lot of just, hypocrisy that's going on and i think it's very interesting to watch um because in a sense it's it's very predictable um but at the same time it's it's predictable but it is uh it's it's still a, a kind of surreal ex experience to watch it because and i think this just comes down to um to the the tribal nature of of people so there have been um how many wars how many how many wars in the last like 20 years and specifically how many I, wars either involving the United States or NATO um, or their allies. So, I mean, we had Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen. Um, we have, and then multiple military operations with bombings going on in other countries and some wars that are still ongoing um, of like just, I think it was just yesterday I saw you know, some, some meme of the, the, the active wars right now and the number of airstrikes in those wars. And so in Yemen, for instance, there were like, you know, I don't know if it was like a hundred airstrikes or something. And, um, and then the, the several dozen that were going on in Ukraine. And so I, th I think that, uh, there's several things going on. One is just the, just how, how much of a role media plays in what people think about and what people think is important to think about, and then the things they don't think about. And but even if I, this is a question I have, you know, if Yemen, for instance, were to be were to get as much um, airplay as Ukraine is getting, you know, of course there's the the novelty effect, right? The Ukraine war just started. The the Yemen war has been going on for years, so no one's gonna no one really cares about Yemen anymore. But ooh, here's a new thing. So. Um, attention directed toward the new war. Um, but look at the reactions that, uh, that you've seen to, to, to what's going on to, to the, to the Russian invasion. It's like, um, the impression that you get from looking at Western headlines, English speaking headlines, um, not just English, um, is that this is like the worst thing to happen since world war II. And the you know the greatest the greatest threat to Europe since World War II the biggest military invasion military attack since World War II, and and look at how evil um, Russia is and how evil Putin is and and it's just it's just terrible and we have to we have to stand with Ukraine right, and then compare just compare the reaction to that to the reaction to um, to all of the the American wars so we can do do a little um, um, what aboutism um, and and. And just say, okay, well, let's com compare all these. Okay, oh, so so we should now um, sanction sanction the sanction Russia, cut them off from the the Western um, 
um, like economic uh, architecture and we should isolate them and, and do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then think, okay, well, what about, you know, what about Libya? You know, what was the world's reaction to, to, the, to the invasion of Libya and the, the, the overthrowing of its government? And what were the what were the justifications for that? What were the reasons given? Were the, um, did they have anything to them? There's there's this weird. Um, well, it's it's on the one hand it's weird. On the other hand, it's just basic human hypocrisy, I think, um, and just the double standards that we that we feel because that we enact. Because when something doesn't when something does something we don't when someone does something we don't like, um, we're outraged. We're morally outraged. How could that person do something? And then our one of our family members or we ourselves do it and then we just justify it to ourselves and we're outraged that anyone could could um could be outraged that we're doing it yeah and it's a total disconnect between um even even if there's a perfect equivalent between the things that we're doing we can't see it in ourselves and we can't um we can't criticize it in ourselves but we'll go overboard in criticizing it in others and uh, I haven't read the book, but I was just listening to a podcast and the, and the, the name of a book came up and it's like, uh, why we're all hypocrites or something. Uh, or no, no, why everyone else, why, why everyone else is a hypocrite yeah. <laughs> except me. <laughs> and, and so it's just, a, it's just kind of common to human nature, unfortunately. And it gets, but then the, the, worst, the worst aspects of human nature have a tendency to be like, to be reinforced and then to be made even worse by propaganda and it's just that's just the nature of uh, social living i think um when and you can see this in the the kind of um the the, the twitter effect or the social media effect where where people tend to congregate into you know their own echo chamber um where they're only looking at, at things from their point of view and not seeing it from other from others point of view and so this is kind of like it's a to from my perspective it's a, a totally unnecessary war in the sense that it didn't have to happen if, for instance, the, the U.S. hadn't staged a coup in 2014 and and everything follows from that. Yeah, um, well, that's what I'm noticing. At least there's as so much there's so much black and white thinking now about this from the people who are just eating up the propaganda. It's like if you don't immediately oppose Russia or let me put it a different way. If you criticize NATO and if you criticize the Western powers in the EU and in, in any way, you are automatically perceived by a lot of people now as you are now siding with Russia. And it's like, what well, I don't think they understand that you can have a nuanced view of this. You don't, you don't have to view Russia as the bad guy to also then look at NATO and say, well, they're not good guys either. And that I'm seeing a lot of that, you know, on Twitter and stuff like that. Yeah, and there, there's this tendency, like, uh, this isn't original to me, I saw it on Twitter somewhere, but some guy was pointing out that, okay, so for years, you've been um, presumably believing that Russia is this evil dictatorship that wants to take over the entire world, and yet, okay, look what's happened in Ukraine, um, you've done nothing to actually prevent the possibility of or the probability or the certainty of Russia invading Ukraine, but seem to have done everything to facilitate it and to provoke it. So you would think that if you were you, if you were dealing with someone that you that you knew was going to to uh, like, well, well, think about it this way. Let's say you're negotiating uh, like a kind of hostage situation 
and you're negotiating with someone that's uh, that's planning to to shoot you, um, are you going to like bluff and bluster and provoke all all in the the expectation that this person's going to kill you, or are you going to try to negotiate? and get yourself out of this horrible situation from this, this rabid killer who's going to, you know, rape and murder you. Um, well, if you're rational, you're going to try to survive. You're going to try to do things that to, to get yourself out of the situation, not to keep pushing them, not to, not to refuse to listen to anything this, this rabid dog has to say. And the, the ironic thing is, or the funny thing is, is that it's not even a good analogy because I don't think that that's totally true. I don't think that, you, that it's, Russia should be seen in that light. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons, like historical reasons. Like if you look at the like uh, you know people in Poland, they have their reasons for why they hate Russians, right? A lot of people have the Eastern, the Western Ukrainians have have their reasons for hating Russians. Um, if you just look at their their history, but the but you'd think that there would be, um, or maybe not. You'd well. You'd hope that there would be a kind of rational approach where you at least pretend to take someone at their word, right? When you when you're in a negotiation with someone that you don't trust, you, you have to put a little bit forward, a, a little bit of trust forward, even if you even if you don't think it's going to work, and then you see what happens, right? You can you can trust someone and uh, engage in on the surface good faith negotiations, and then see what happens. This was a problem. I'm reading this book on uh, on. Julius Caesar, a, a recent book called Julius Caesar and the Roman People by uh, Morstein Marx. I can't remember his first name. And he's talking about the conflict between um, Pompey and Caesar. And he, he analyzes it in terms, uh, well, he's got an appendix where he looks at it in terms of game theory. And he uses game theory as just kind of a framework to understand and to, to present what was going on in this um, in this conflict between Caesar and Pompey, and I, I, I see like big similarities between like the West and Russia when looked um, uh, when looked at in, in these terms, and how this kind of like increasing distrust. The more you distrust the other side, the the like the 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 less likely is the less likely either side is going to make a concession. Now, in the case of of Caesar and Pompey, Caesar continued to make concessions and to 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 bring forward um, like uh, to bring forward new concessions and to bring forward um, new proposals for peace, new proposals to to stave off this eventual war, eventual war, and um, presumably Pompey and the people surrounding him had uh, well some of them had such a deep distrust of of Caesar that they they interpreted what he was doing as these aggressive moves and just wouldn't wouldn't accept any. Um, any negotiations, any any inch that Caesar was willing to give, until civil war became inevitable, and it actually, um, Morstein Marx, Marx argues that um, we have a like a misunderstanding of the crossing the Rubicon, that that wasn't actually the moment where civil war was inevitable, and, and Caesar crossed the Rubicon, and decided, okay, we're going to have to go to war. That was kind of a, um, a an after the fact explanation of what happened. Um, or just, or yeah, after after the fact, kind of literary description of you know what he must have been thinking when he crossed the Rubicon, just because it was an iconic moment that had resonances with um, with the the classics at the time, like the, their histories and their myths um, of the the significance of crossing the river, crossing the boundary. But when when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, um, there were he, he still didn't 
didn't see civil war as inevitable. And they were like for, I think it was for um, months after crossing the Rubicon, he was still open to negotiations and staving off this war. Now there's, so there are parallels to what's going, been going on with, with Russia and um, uh, Russia and Caesar, or Russia and Caesar, Russia and, the, and NATO and the, and the US, um, where you see this kind of, you see these two sides that don't trust each other and, and from each perspective have reason not to trust each other. And yet when one side continues to bring forward, um, you know, their conditions or even their um, like concessions they're willing to make, um, the problem is that, well, there's a lot of propaganda around it, but um, the way I see it is that like in this case, NATO and, and, um, and the US have been pretty much Pompeii in this situation, that they've, they have not made an effort to, to see the perspective of the, of the other side and to take them at their word um, and this was what I was and from saying. the Russian side, this is what I was saying too, is that people don't want to look at it from the other side in the sense that, you know, a nation is going to act in its self-interest almost always. And it shouldn't be a surprise to people that Russia is going to do something that acts in its own self-interest. I'm, I'm not saying it justifies the invasion or anything like that. I'm just saying you need to put these things in context, but, you know, flip it around. Imagine the situation were different. Imagine Russia all of a sudden, you know, came, came into Canada and annexed a part of Canada and was now like hugging right next to the United States border. Um, I think, you know, people in America would react in, in a similar sort of way as the Russians are reacting. And, you know, you, it helps to put things in that perspective. But, you know, with the propaganda, as soon as you start talking in that way, it's automatically you're an apologist for Putin or you're justifying all these things and et cetera. You're on his side or whatever. They can't look at the nuance. People who are propagandized, the nuance is lost on them. Reason flies out the window mm -hmm. um, and everything becomes black and white. You're with us or against us. Mm -hmm. And then everything becomes everything becomes interpreted in the light of the way you're already seeing things. So the fact that the fact that Russia invaded proved that they were always going to invade and that they've wanted to invade since 1989 or 1991 and that they, they've and they, just they, finally got the chance and, and to, to the, do it. And then these folks act like it, it happened in a vacuum, like there like there wasn't all these other mm -hmm. things, factors that led up to this, you know, like you, you mentioned the, the coup and in 2014, maybe you could talk a bit about that and what, what actually happened in Ukraine in 2014 that kind of set the stage for this. I don't know if anyone I get too much into those details, but basically I think the, the long and short well, is the CIA sort of sponsored a coup and installed neo-Nazis. I think that's pretty much as far into it as we want to get. Yeah, I, I will say for anyone that wants the depth, um, the, the best book that I've found on it is Gordon Hahn's Ukraine Over the Edge. It's, uh, it's a big book. Um, I think it's something like 500 pages and they're big pages. So he goes in like, it's, I, I just think it's the best book. It's got all the history in it. It's got everything. Uh, I think the book was written like, or published probably around three years ago, um, but still relevant and you can 2018. Yeah. So you can still use it to understand what, what's been going on and what's been happening. Um, yeah. With all that background and the section on the, on the uh, the neo-Nazi like battalions and groups, I can't remember which one he focuses on. He, right sector probably, uh, well, right sector for sure. And then there's a couple others I think. But he he he's got a section where he goes into them and like reads their actual documents, their actual propaganda, and it's a really good. Uh, even just those four or five pages are a really good case study in 
um, like ponderology and what Lobachevsky talks about um, as like what he calls a ponderogenic union, um, basically a small group, um, a small group that is, um, what's the best way to put it, um, infected by, you know, a small political group infected by evil. And um, you can see the psychopathology of these neo-Nazi battalions and the, and the, the groups that, that form them. And um, of course, so yeah, just to, to relate it back to ponderology. You know, I think that's kind of that's kind of like what I, I think has been the best part of the conversation is that a lot of people and, and one of the things you know, we talk a lot, a lot about ponderology and psychopathology and how, you know, they can impact people on the macro social level. One thing we haven't addressed is possible solutions. So one of the things that Lobachevsky said, uh, you know, is that you shouldn't attempt to cure a disease that you don't understand. It's like one of the very basic principles of medicine. And so I, that's why I like to talk about ponderology and, you know, cluster B disorders and all these things is because the awareness of these conditions and the, like, to, to truly grok and understand them at a, at a deep level is not something that's occurring at a wide enough scale planetary, you know, among the, the general population. So that, and I think if we get there, I think there, you know, the idea is that uh, the way to treat this problem is to have sort of a critical mass awareness of what's causing it and that's why i think ponderology is so mm. important conversations like these are really important i'm so happy that you guys put another uh, version of the book together that's going to be yeah. a little bit easier to understand with more information because that that was the huge that was the achilles heel of the original edition is that it was clunky it was difficult to there understand was a, there was a barrier there was definitely sure. a barrier yeah. there especially you know you'd have to be really interested in reading and psychology and and to, to really get into it yeah it, i mean it, it could be dry too you know, so you have to really be willing to trudge through books like that uh, for the sake of getting information. I'm a book nerd, so I'm like crazy excited for the new edition. Like, I love footnotes galore. I love that stuff. You know. So, what do you think is the? the Great, you'll you'll love it then. Well, I think you you kind of nailed what um, what Lobachevsky's main solution is. Um, I'll relate this back to the idea of the dynamics of. The, the, the dynamics of evil being the same at every level, it's the same, the same thing works with the solutions. So Lobachevsky gives, gives examples of, <clears throat> of patients of his and the way he'd work with them. And when you have a situation um, like Josh Slocum's, where, for instance, a child has been raised by a borderline mother, or um, you can use any other combination, um, you know, a child raised by any kind of personality disordered parent, um, or even uh, an adult having an, a relationship or an interaction with with another whose personality disordered, whether it's a family member, um, a spouse, a a child, or, or, or a work colleague, or a boss. In any of these situations, the problem is that the person doesn't understand what's happening, and it's when it when they are thrown into this situation or when they've been living in it for, for years, um, there's just no frame of reference to understand what was going on, either to compare it to normal and to realize that it wasn't normal or to, to understand why it's so out of, why it's so uh, out of the ordinary and abnormal. Um, there's this barrier to understanding because it's just not within the, a person's frame of reference to understand what's going on. Yeah. And so what Lobachevsky found is that the, the, in the therapeutic process, just explaining to a person what's going on 
just giving them the basic facts about personality disorders was the, it has a curative effect. It has a healing effect. And that's why I like um, Josh Slocum's show and his story so much is that he's a perfect representation um, or manifestation of that phenomenon. When he found out about narcissistic and borderline personality disorders, all of a sudden his entire childhood made sense. His mother made sense. And, and that was a, a huge healing moment for him that he acknowledges and that he talks about repeatedly. Well, so I, what Lobachevsky found and what he argues. I'm thinking, uh, I keep thinking of, uh, of Yanmi Park kept coming to my head and she's reminding me of, I guess, a more macro social example of this, but she was from North Korea um, and she did an interview with Jordan Peterson and a couple other people recently, but she describes her experience of growing up there and how she didn't even know that there was another way for societies to be until she was able to get out of mm -hmm. North Korea and knew what actual freedom was outside of that really strict authoritarian type of system, which you could view, you know, as, as the individual's relationship to the government is like you're in a relationship with an, an, an abusive parent in a sense and that's how an authoritarian government behaves is they behave like that like an abusive parent a crazy parent you know well, guys i lost you oh oh no you're still here oh you're back we're okay. back uh we got we had a little hiccup there little hiccup it's okay it's okay but yeah so i i you know i was the whole time you were talking i kept thinking of her and her describing that revelation that she had just from leaving North Korea and realizing like, wow, oh my God, this is what normal life outside of a really harsh authoritarian country and relationship with the government is like. Mm -hmm. So, so Lobachevsky argues that the, the main thing, the first thing that needs to be done and to, to be achieved is what Brent was just saying about that critical mass of understanding where if, you know, if everyone were to listen to uh, to Josh to Josh's podcast or to um, you know to read this book, if if this were if this kind of information were to somehow become popularized, where it was common knowledge, that would in in to a large degree um, like neuter the neuter these ability or these these processes, um, like kind of nip them in the bud. That's one thing, and because because the, the dynamic is the same, the, the explanation for what happens or what is happening um, is healing and gives a person an understanding of what's going on. So kind of like the, the, the individual you're talking about, I can't remember her name, um, Lobachevsky talks about, yeah, um, about a couple of his patients, one of whom was a, uh, an ex-concentration camp uh, inmate and who had problems at home, um, problems as a, as a parent raising her children or her daughter, I think it was, and how by giving her hints um, about the nature of the political system he couldn't speak to too, too openly, um, that she got it, she understood it. And that was, that in itself had a, a healing effect on the, the psychological problems that she and others were having as a result of living under the system. And so that was specifically for people living within a full a full-blown pathocracy and just like um you know you'll hear a lot of people say that if you haven't lived under it then you can't understand it and that's true to a large degree you know for people who that that didn't live in um under you know the various forms of totalitarianism in the 20th century um for those that didn't live under that they 
don't understand it and they probably a lot of them probably can't understand it it's and just totally outside of their realm of experience and yanmi's yanmi park's example was the opposite of that she never knew what it was like to be in a non-authoritarian totally authoritarian mm -hmm. society like that was foreign to her she didn't mm -hmm. realize that that societies could even be any other way than the way they were in North Korea. It's also interesting because one of the things that we're noticing now is that we are finding people from China, people that are from ex-Soviet bloc countries that immigrated here with their families in the mid 20th century or late 20th century. They are warning like everyone that yeah. they talk to. Lily they're, Tang. They're seeing yeah. the resurgence of these similar patterns that kind of, you know, that what they left their home country for, they're starting to see it here in the United States and in Canada. Mm -hmm. On that note, yep. I think and I think Canada is kind of the subject we should end on. Um, you, Harrison, you are sure. Canadian, although you are no longer in Canada. Yes, I am. Yes. Um, so I think it is appropriate for us to discuss those things as well. And I think that's probably the best topic for us to end on. So, you know, what do you think is going on over there? And how do you think this is going to play out? Um, I'm hoping most of our listeners already kind of have the basic details of the convoy and the emergency powers and those sorts of things. And But I don't know. What do you think? Are Trudeau's days numbered or is it going to get worse? Is he going to clamp down? I, you know, I'm terrible at predictions. I have no idea what's going to happen, except the only prediction I'd be willing to make is that whatever does happen, things will continue to get worse. Um, because I don't see any trends of them uh, indicating that they will get better, that they can get better. For some reason, Canada is um, at the, the forefront of, uh, you know, Western nations unwittingly and, well, uh, unwittingly on the part of the, the majority and um, unknowingly going down this totalitarian path. And I say that like not even realizing it. Now, of course, there are some people that realize it because the, the political psychopaths will always are always aware of these things and can see the direction things are going and even, you know, have a hand in pushing them along. But the vast majority of people have no idea what's going on. Um, they are, they're going along with it. Um, be, and it, it, in a sense, it's kind of like, I read Machiavelli recently. We're going to, we're going to publish a show on, uh, on Machiavelli pretty soon. And you can admire, you can admire what's going on in Canada as just genius from an evil point of view. And not just Canada, to, to, to greater or lesser degrees, it's been going on across the entire planet with, uh, with, with that which shall not be named. Um, I just call it, how uh, I call a, it new, the new normal bullshit. We just call it that. We, we, we don't even have to acknowledge yes. the virus. So the new normal bullshit, um, where it, it's, it's the perfect hijacking of normal human psychology. Um, we did another, we recorded another show recently um, where we read Norman Deutsch's um, article, Needlepoints, and commented on needlepoints. And he talks about this thing called the behavioral immune system. And it's this tendency when you think other people might have an infectious disease to, um, to then essentially go to the point of demonizing them because they, they're, they're potentially infectious, um, not even definitely infectious, but potentially infectious. And that creates this like, rock hard barrier between you and that person and that other person becomes the enemy and this has and this mentality is going is prevalent is present um on both sides of the new normal to to greater or lesser degrees and um has created this 
this perfect justification for the the introduction of a new normal. And so so I, I can look at a lot of um, my colleagues and friends and family and the things that they they write about what's going on, you know, like on Facebook, and I can see that you know if I if I put myself in their position. I can see that it, it more or less makes sense. You know, I can see, okay, you know, I can see where they're coming from. I can see, you know, why they're saying that. Um, when I adopt their position, even if I totally disagree with it for other reasons, but what they don't realize is that to a large degree, that's irrelevant. That that is, that, that, that by, by seeing things only in terms of the most obvious, they're completely blind to the the ulterior motives that can, and I would argue are um, being injected into this phenomenon. Um, because you can, um, you can take over a country, you can, um, you can turn a country into a, uh, a, a pathocracy using the truth. It's just how you use it. Um, and that's, and I'm, I'm not saying, well, I'm not saying that they, that's what they are doing, but to a large degree, um, to a large degree, that's the way it happens. So you can take, uh, like, I'm just saying this for the sake of argument. You can, even if we accept that everything is exactly the way the the, the official narrative has been, um, everything about that has been true, even when it changes, all the changes have been true as well. That that's that's irrelevant. That even if that were the case, it's possible to use a situation like that to create a new structure that then. Um, facilitates the emergence of this kind of, um, like in this case, leftist totalitarianism. And there are, and it just shows how willing people are to, to, to give up, um, you know, it, it sounds, it sounds like a cliche to give up their freedoms, um, in the, in the face of, um, you know, what they perceive to be something scary, but, the, the ironic thing is, is like, like those people that, that you mentioned, Brent, like the, the Chinese, the, the Eastern Europeans, the people who have lived through this, you know, the North Koreans that come here and say, I'm seeing the same shit going down. Um, like, like them. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought, but, um, happens all the time to me. like them there, <laughs> there is this, um, oh, I really want to get it back I have to get back on that train that. Oh, um, no big deal. And it's gone. So the, okay, let me just no no. Andre, let me let me take trace back what I was saying. So like we're, we're going on this we're going on this uh, this journey, right? And uh, we're we're unaware of it. Oh yeah. So so we lose this. Um, so we we lose our sense of freedom. We lose the importance of freedom. But the the thing is, is that once we've lost it, and the new normal becomes the new normal, like in all reality. Then a lot of these people are going to be like, look back and say, "Oh, you know, shit. You know, <laughs> now I understand. Now I understand why it would have been so important, or why it was so important, to try to preserve this thing that at the time seemed so ephemeral and so unimportant in the face of this big danger." Because I think pro probably I'm going to try to go for an aphorism here. Probably the most important things in the long run, and even in the short run, like in our everyday lives, are the things that are least obvious. And those are the things that are that we're most likely to, to shunt aside in the face of what we perceive as this big and obvious problem. And it's that weakness, it's that weakness of being able to, to see the importance of the unseen things 
these implicit things that hold uh, human life together, that hold our relationships together and hold our society together, is that <clears throat> when, we, when we lose sight of that and we have that weakness um, in the face of something that, that's blunt and concrete and in front of us, if it is blunt and concrete, it <clears throat> doesn't have to be, then we then we're giving up um, we're giving up the, everything that like all of those like little unconscious decisions that have collect, been collected in the, like the, the, the thing we call society for for generations and for hundreds and even thousands of years we just will throw that aside because we can't see its importance and then we're essentially opening the doors to our own destruction and that's what happened that's what has happened historically that's what ponderology is about that's that's the warning is that when we do that and when we're unaware of these processes going on on that that are our own fault um for for being weak for being um for for not seeing what's going on we are the ones opening the door for this trojan horse and then we really will have no one but ourselves to blame when you know in the future we look back and say oh well you know i was just so scared for um you know for my life and for, for the lives of the, the people I love. It's like, well, you know, sometimes you have to take into account more than just one issue. Yeah. You don't know what you most know. of the time you have to you don't know what you got until it's gone is a big problem. But also one of the things that Lobachevsky talks about that we kind of touched on, but a little bit was the, the hysterization of society, making, you know, people more hysterical over a threat, you know, in, in Nazi Germany, it was the, the, the Jews and the gypsies and the homosexuals and everybody that didn't fit in, you know, he drummed up the threat that that had to the stability of society. And now, you know, with the new normal, we have the coof and the unjabbed. The, well, yes. And it's, we're sort of creating like this, this mass hysteria surrounding that. But interestingly, that narrative sort of has kind of collapsed more or less. You know, we've seen a lot of data coming out that, that is counter to that, you know, between insurance companies reporting new claims, between, you know, Pfizer trying to hide data. Uh, we have a lot of interesting little data points that were just starting to bubble up and come to the surface that were taking that whole narrative apart. And then Bam, now we have this, oh, war, oh, Ukraine, ah, oh, it's this whole thing. And it's just like, everybody quick, look over here. Yep. And it's just like, I'm just like, now people are getting hysterical over Ukraine and they don't seem to realize the inherent danger of that hysteria in and of itself and that emotional fervor. And that the media will channel it from thing to thing, especially if they need to divert your attention away from something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of those tricky things about, again, about human psychology. And it's one of those things. This is one of the, one of the ideas that weaves in and out of ponderology is that we haven't, I don't think we've really talked about it yet, is that psychopaths are just like they observe the emotions and we, and they learn how to mimic emotions. They are kind of pseudo experts at human psychology. They know what pushes our buttons and they know how to use that to manipulate us. So, so just, just um, how to put this. So with mass hysteria, mass hysteria can happen on its own without the involvement of any psychopaths, but psychopaths observing this know how it works and know how to weaponize it for their own purposes. So you, the, the, you, you've always got to look at things from kind of two points of view, one being that okay, this is the way humans operate and this is kind of normal. And then also, how can this be used and manipulated and how might it be being 
how, how might it be being used and, and to, to manipulate us? So this is the thing that, that people, this, this goes back to my point about Canada, that people, that a lot of Canadians are, I would say, um, kind of hopelessly naive about that they don't consider that. They don't consider that something that they think of as good and necessary might also be being used by bad actors, you know, people who don't have their best interests at heart, people who are, who have an agenda. And that seems to be, I mean, that for me, that should kind of always be part of any, any equation when talking about anything involving humans in groups or, or individuals. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have to, we have to be skeptical and we, especially about politicians. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. funny because I, it's one of the things I was watching your last episode of My Matters and one of the things you brought up was the pervasiveness of lies in politics and how everybody sort of understands that politicians are liars and thieves and cheats. But when you start to like, you know, put, point out the fact that, well, okay, well, we know that, but maybe they're lying and cheating and stealing about this particular issue. Maybe we should, you know, consider that. They're like, oh, no, that can't be happening. No, they're, they're totally being honest about this thing. I'm just like, well, I, what you were saying too made me think of you know one of, one of the debates around the origins of of the coup of the virus, and you know I think yes the question of whether or not it was manufactured. Well, we know it was, I think we know pretty certain now that it was definitely manufactured. I think the real question that people grapple with, like especially in the conspiracy realm, is was it released on purpose or did it get out by accident? And I think. Ultimately, that question is less important than the things you're saying, because what it comes down to is whether the crisis was manufactured or just happened, these types of folks are going to take advantage of it and use it for the types of things that we're seeing them use it for. So yeah, in some situations, a crisis will arise. They didn't create it, the people in power, but they see it as the perfect opportunity to do certain things that they've been wanting to do. And then maybe in another situation, yeah, they're like, well, we need a crisis right now. So create one and then do the things that you're trying to do and use it to justify it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people aren't aware of just, just how devious some of these things can be and just how devious psychopaths can be. Like you read some of these stories and then, and you just extrapolate that to, to the level of politics and it becomes, I mean, you, you can become pretty cynical and jaded, but, um, but at the same time, it's kind of required to at least have that realistic um like practical approach to looking at these kinds of things that it's not it's not loony to to think that there are some really shady people out there and that uh, that are involved in these kinds of things um yeah yeah it's very bizarre especially when you consider you know jeffrey epstein and the whole epstein affair and you know, it shows us that these types of people can exist. They can have access to incredible amounts of resources. They can get away with their crimes for long periods of time and also, you know, navigate or avoid the justice system because they have connections to, you know, pol political, you know, politicians, billionaires, royalty. royalty and intelligence agencies. And the, the justice apparatus is also compromised because it, you know, it took forever. And then what happened to Epstein, you know, before he got to trial, conveniently he was killed. And then recently Jean-Luc Brunel was also, uh, you know, found dead by hanging, which I thought was just such a, it is like almost like the people that killed Epstein also like killed him and did it in the same exact way, just so that they could like, leave a calling card Maybe. in that same way yeah. that your typical serial killer will, will leave that kind of calling card and part of this it just shows it, it reminds me of how that that pathology can exist across you know like in and in, in very wealthy and in extreme amounts of power part of this though i think is 
normal folks, everyday folks, they just, they don't want to believe that their leaders could possibly be capable of doing things this evil <laughs> on this scale, you know, doing things like, you know, raping kids, and selling them and, and, you know, maybe creating a virus and releasing it on people. They can't conceive of that. And maybe they can conceive it, but I think part of it is they just, they simply don't want to allow themselves to believe that because once you do, it really changes yep. your entire worldview and you have to approach life differently. The world becomes a much might, darker place. And you might, maybe <laughs> you might have to say something about it or do something about it, God forbid. And that's a huge responsibility. And it's also just a frightening, scary thought. Like who wants to, to think that, you know, like, wow, my leaders are crazy evil psychopaths who will basically do whatever they want to get power, to keep power. And they will use me and throw me away for it. It's just, we want to believe these people care about us, I think. And it goes back to that point I, I made where people with a conscience want to believe everyone has one and that there's a little bit of good in everyone and that they're looking out for us. I think even some of the, the Q people, that's what they were falling for. Like, oh, there's a secret group in the government conspiring to take down the evil psychopaths. And <laughs> it's like, no, that's not happening, guys. Yeah. Nope. Well, I think on that note, uh, Harrison, do you have any final thoughts that you want to express before we wrap it up? Uh, I don't think so. I'll just repeat the, some of the information that, that you gave about me at the beginning. So if you want to look for Mind Matters, Mind Matters, one word on YouTube and on wherever you get podcasts. We're also on Odyssey. Um, that's kind of a, just a backup channel so that we have all our, our videos um, archived. And the new edition... Um, there's no release date yet, but I'm hoping that we can have it published, um, like fingers crossed, like in a month, maybe. So like maybe end of March. Um, but we'll have, we'll, we'll make more uh, definite announcements as that time approaches. So, yeah. but What's yeah, that? other than that, I want to thank you guys. It was a fun interview. We talked about it a lot. Yeah, that was, it was a great conversation. What's that? Once you have the, the link for sale of the new edition, I'll throw it into the description for the pod. I'll update it. Yeah, we'll probably so even when it's maybe, out, people can just maybe we'll do a follow up discussion too. And we'll, you know, we'll see, but we're definitely going to be promoting the book. And it's a book we talk about as often as we can on the show. And I think you're probably the most qualified person we've had this discussion with about these things. So thanks for joining us, man. Seriously, we appreciate it. Cool. Yeah. Anytime. And I'd love to come on again uh, when the book's out and who knows, maybe we could even, you could ha even have someone else on with me. We could have a whole, a whole fun we, thing with we it. Could, we could read some sections from yeah. it and stuff like that, but don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, share this video with your friends and we will be back again soon with another one. Thanks for watching guys. Bye-bye.